Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly Mail Plus program, bringing you the latest royal news, views and experts. I'm Jo Elvin and oh my gosh, there is a lot to tell you about this week. Here's what's coming up. Find out why, after a few tricky weeks for the House of Windsor this week, they are celebrating finally. Plus, as the crown returns to our screens, we ask an historian to mark the producer's homework to see how accurate it is. And sticking on that theme, the return of the show has thrust Diana's wardrobe back into the spotlight. We take a look at how she is still inspiring people with those incredible looks. First, let's go to the Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English, for the latest from the Windsors. Rebecca, hello and welcome to you. Let's start with the twist to the Meghan Markle court case. Yet another one. Yes, there have been some really interesting developments in it this week. So we learn from papers lodged at the High Court by Meghan's own legal team that she did indeed feed information to the authors of the controversial biography, Finding Freedom. As I understand it, she was concerned about uh, her relationship with her estranged father, Thomas Markle, was going to be portrayed in the book. So she let it be known to a third party, a friend, who she knew had been approached by the authors, what her version of events was, clearly in the hope that they would find their way favourably into the book. Now, this is interesting because, of course, she is suing the Mail on Sunday for privacy over its decision to publish a letter she wrote to Mr. Markle. And there's another interesting development um, which has fascinated me, that Megan says in these papers that she only wrote that letter after taking the advice and counsel of two members of the royal family other than her husband. Now, they're not named in this, but obviously that's not going to stop a guessing game as to who they might be. And I'm not sure that is something that the Buckingham Palace is going to entirely welcome. you dare to have a guess for us? I've got my suspicions. <laughs> I'm not saying. You're such a tease, Rebecca. Well, let's move on to and the big story of the week, I think, is that, you know, the scandal of the BBC's Panorama interview with Diana is rumbling on. And we've just had an intervention from Prince William, which I really wasn't expecting. And this is quite unusual, right? It's definitely very unusual. I think we actually discussed on this programme a week or so ago that I thought that while he wasn't saying anything at the moment, if this case moved on significantly, he would. And of course, this week it has. The BBC has announced that it's appointed a senior and very respected judge to lead an independent inquiry into the claims and allegations that Diana was effectively duped into giving this interview 25 years ago partly through the use of fake documents. And William has now come out and said tentatively, and I think that's a very interesting choice of words, tentatively he welcomes this and he is really interested to hear what happens because he wants to get to the truth of what ha- the circumstances surrounding how the interview took place. And crucially, he makes a point of saying how the BBC investigated it at the time. Now, the mail has been at the very forefront of this story, hasn't it? Which, you know, must be to the chagrin of quite a few people at the BBC. 
it is. I'm really proud of the team on the mail of the way they've investigated this really forensically every step of the way in recent weeks. And and genuinely, I know people like to blow their own trumpet, but if it wasn't for the work the mail had done, I, I very much doubt we would be seeing a BBC investigation now. Congratulations to you all. But let's move on to a story that the royals will want to focus on. I believe there's a huge anniversary looming. There is. The Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh are this week celebrating their 73rd wedding anniversary. I mean, 73 years. I mean, that is it's just a remarkable achievement. Not a real thing, is it? 73 years marriage. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people will celebrate a 73rd birthday, but 73 years marriage. I mean, that's just incredible. So they've marked it with a special portrait, I believe. Can you tell us more about that? Well, I can. And actually, if you're watching this programme when it comes out first thing on Friday, you'll actually be some of the first people in the country to see a new portrait and I have to tell you, this isn't just any standard portrait. It's actually one of the loveliest I've ever seen. It shows the couple in great health in the Oak Room at Windsor Castle, looking at an anniversary card made by three of their great-grandchildren, Prince George, Princess Charlotte and Prince Louis, alongside other cards and letters sent by well-wishers. It's actually a stroke of genius by Buckingham Palace. What do you think is the secret to... A successful marriage that long is it separate castles or something that I don't I don't know about <laughs> uh, do you know they, they they've really struck a good balance it might not be for everybody but it works for them I mean Philip understood pretty quickly that while the queen was his wife she was also very unique in the fact that she's also head of state and he, he's let her get on with that but equally she accepts that when it comes to the private the family that he's been the boss and you know they have managed to find a balance and yes I mean there's been a lot written over the years that they don't often live in the same place together and it might not be for everybody but crucially it works for them you know they found what works for them and they seem actually I'd say happier than ever. Now let's move on there's another anniversary this week this, it's 10 years since William and Kate announced their engagement and before we get to your thoughts on that I think we've just got a quick video of that time way back when. Kate, people are obviously incredibly curious about you, so let's start with the obvious. William, where did you propose? When, how, and Kate, what did you say? Uh, it was about uh, three weeks ago on a holiday in Kenya. Um, we had a little private time um, away together with some friends, and I just decided that it was the right time, really. Um, we'd been talking about, about um, marriage for a while. So it wasn't a massively big surprise, but uh, I took her up somewhere nice in, uh, in Kenya and, uh, and proposed. It's very romantic. There's a true romantic in that. There is. <laughs> you said yes, obviously. Of course, yes. Yeah. Thankfully. <laughs> oh my gosh, Rebecca, they both look so nervous. I feel like they've grown up so much since then. What, what are your memories of that time and that engagement announcement? Well, I was actually on maternity leave at the time, although somebody I know at Buckingham Palace rung me up on the day uh, to kind of mark my card that the engagement was going to be announced that day and um, much to my surprise invited me to St James's Palace to have a cup of tea with them before their big official photo call alongside with some other royal writers and I, I mean I hadn't barely been out of the house in four months you know put on anything else but a tracksuit but I found myself standing there having a cup of tea with them and I think because I was so full of baby brain I didn't notice at first that Kate was waving a hand around talking that she was wearing this incredible ring and I think with Baby Brain Engage, I just blurted out when I saw it, oh, my God, is that what I think it is? And actually, she smiled very sweetly and looked quite shy and went, well, yes, it is. And then William came over and put his arm around her. And they, kind of, they just looked really happy. And I 
said again, gosh, that's a pretty grand romantic gesture. And he actually said really touchingly, um, it was a, a matter of immense sadness to him that his mother had never met Catherine and that he really wanted her to be part of such a special event in their lives. And that's why he decided to give Kate her engagement ring, which I thought was lovely. Gosh, what a memory. I hope you write the book one day, Rebecca. Your memoirs will be <laughs> something else. But thank you for that. We'll catch up with you a bit later. Here to discuss that and much more are author and broadcaster Kathy Lett and The Mail's Saturday Diary editor, Richard Eden, my TV husband. Great to see you both. Hi. Hi. Now, Kathy, yes. it's not around number 73, but it's an impressive one. What do you think the secret is? Well, it's, it's, theirs is a love story that's lasted the test of time. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, love prepares you for marriage the way needlepoint prepares you for round-the-world solo yachting. You know, love may be blind, but marriage is a real eye-opener, isn't it? To survive that long, forget climbing Everest or going down the Amazon. That is the ultimate endurance test. But can you imagine how many times she's wanted to put him in the tower? Uh, because well, I wouldn't foot, like to his, say. His foot-in-mouth disease has been pretty chronic, hasn't uh, it? So Maybe that's what keeps it interesting. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, what would you say? I think it does help having different houses, doesn't it? Come on, I mean, yeah. you know, during I haven't the, tried that, but during, yeah. During the stresses of lockdown, I'm sure that lots of people around the country have found it difficult, you know, <laughs> living with a husband or a wife. And especially you can put the drawbridge up. Um, yeah. But it's different if you can disappear somewhere else. So I think that's probably um, the key. But also, I think um, it's the Queen's faith, isn't it? She's always had great faith, um, taken her marriage vows very seriously, and... Um, and I think they've enjoyed each other's company, probably. Probably. Uh, <laughs> I think. Maybe. Well, oh, the, uh, the odds are. I, I hope so. <laughs> but, I mean, Philip is so integral to the Queen's role in a lot of ways. He's really such a support for her. Is that, that's not wrong, is it? It's sort of unthinkable, really, to imagine the Queen without Prince Philip, isn't it? You know, he's always been there just a step behind. And it... It's sometimes we've seen her carrying out engagements since he retired, you know, sometimes with Prince Andrew or with other members of the royal family. And it's always seemed very odd. They really have been that key couple that have been the. He's like her bouncer. I mean, Joe, Joe and I actually met, this is so hilarious, at Buckingham Palace. We did. Because when the Queen was taking her last overseas trip, she wanted to get her ear into the Aussie lingo. So she had all the Aussies down to Buck House for a bit of a Barbie, you know. <laughs> and, and I don't remember the Barbie, but yeah. Well, you know, yeah. and, and Hugh Jackman was there, and I think Kylie was there, and uh, was Kate there? I mean, yeah. all, all the kind of, uh, the Gumleaf Mafia. And I had been working that day, I was very busy and I suddenly thought, oh God, I've got to get to the palace, what will I wear? And I suddenly remembered I had this little suit with corgis on it, corgis with um, tiaras with diamante encrusted, you know, little pearls on there, <laughs> on the tiara. So I whacked that on, I drove to the palace and I ran upstairs and the Queen was in a rictus of boredom. She'd been meeting Australians for hours, you know, she looked so, so, all too tedious. And I rocked up in my little corgi suit and I said, I hope you like this suit, I wore it just for you. Although I'm slightly worried that one of your corgis might mate with my leg. And all the, all the courtiers went, <gasps> and she went, Oh, Philip, it's rather funny. And Philip came over and he just went to me, get on with your girl, you know, and he was protecting her from my <laughs> sense of humour. So I thought he was going to boomerang me back to Botany Bay, but he didn't. So I think he kind of protects her in that way. Like, the bouncer. Like, well, you're wearing your tiara today, so I'm well, sure darling, Her Majesty would appreciate that. You know why, though? Because in Australia we have an inverted snobbery. If you can trace yourself back to the convict fleet, you're Antipodean royalty. So first and second fleet, darling, I am 
the creme de la creme, shall we say. So I want more respect from you two, please. Oh, well, I should have a tiara as well. Yeah, convict style. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, anyway, yeah. back to matters at hand. I mean, these, Richard, in seriousness, these good news stories, do you think they boost the country's morale or do you think the country's not that bothered or, you know? Well, I think everyone loves an anniversary, don't they? And I really enjoyed um, looking through the Mail on Sunday supplement at the weekend on, um, you know, William and Kate, the love story. And it, I must admit, it did make me feel a bit old. It was, you know, <laughs> the, the, these pictures of when they got together and when poor Prince William had lots of hair. Um, but, but they were wonderful. And um, The air with the hair. It is a good story. I mean, at the moment, you start to think optimism is some kind of eye disease. <laughs> you know, we're all in Eeyore mode. So just to have a little bit of celebration and fun and mm. frivolity is, is really needed. What, what, what do you think are the biggest changes that you've noticed with William and Kate in that 10 years? I would say loss of humour. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I also I met them a few times when they were engaged. And I, what I really liked about Kate, that she was quite mischievous. I think Kate has become more regal, definitely. She's definitely sort of growing into the role. She's blossomed in terms of her role and in terms of, you know, being central to the royal family. But, but I, I think, yeah, it is a bit more serious now. But it must be awful to have to lose your humour and be grown up like that. Because I, another time I met, I met um, William at the polo, at the Royal Polo, and... Obviously, there were, Clarence House rang me and said, we can see you're coming to the Royal Polo. Do you want to present the cups to the princes? They were very low on celebrities that day, like Zedlow, yeah. you know. <laughs> oh, please. And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I got there, and the guy who was organising the Polo was one of those guys who sends his shirts out to be stuffed, you know, quite pompous. And I said, well, what do I do? And he looked down his nose at me and said, well, you just, as the princes approach, you kiss them on the cheek and present the cup. So as Prince William came walking towards me, I could see he looked quite bored. And I said, apparently I have to kiss you. Do you want tongue? <laughs> and Prince William went, oh, perhaps later. You know, and he went back and told Harry. And I could see Harry was killing himself laughing. And he came up and I said, do you want tongue? He's like, oh, yeah. How have you not been beheaded? That's what I want to know. Moving on to the other big royal story of the week. The Crown is back on Netflix, in case you hadn't noticed. Now, if you're anything like me, you watch it with your phone in your hand, constantly searching, did Queen Elizabeth really do that? I do do that. Who's been spying? Luckily, author Hugo Vickers is well armed for separating facts from fiction, and he's been looking at some of the biggest storylines from series four. Your Majesty. Well, one of the problems that I've had with The Crown really from the start is the fact that it is um, beautifully written, very lavishly produced, well filmed and with good actors and actresses. But there is a fundamental dishonesty to it because they put real people in semi-real situations and then they create all sorts of things which didn't actually happen. Prime Minister! What a lovely morning. We get a scene where Mrs. Thatcher is invited as Prime Minister's are to Balmoral at the end of August each year. And uh, in this particular scene, it's, it's all sort of designed really to show Mrs. Thatcher being put ill at ease and sort of more or less tortured, all sorts of tests. They call it Balmoral Test. Well, of course, as you can imagine, the royal family are perfectly aware that people are nervous when they come to stay. So they actually, in real life, go out of their way to make people feel welcome. And there's no possibility that they would have um, humiliated the Prime Minister in that particular way. Ooh! There was a terrible incident when, in uh, 1988, Hugh Lindsay, who was an equerry to the Queen and a great friend of Prince Charles, they were skiing off Peaston Closters, and there was an avalanche, and he was swept away and killed. And so they decide to use this as a spur to have 
Prince Charles on the one hand saying, actually, he now realizes his life's too short and he wants to be with Camilla. And Diana on the other hand saying, you know, actually, I was about to lose the Prince of Wales and I actually want to make this thing work. I'm starting to properly loathe you. What's taking you so long? The rest of us have been there for some time. But I can assure you that neither of those things happened at all. There was no um, actual fear that that marriage would in any way break down or, or, or that they might separate until 1992. So at the end of series four, what I found was that the only person who came out of it well, really, was Diana. Um, you disliked, uh, rather disliked the Queen, rather disliked Margaret Thatcher, certainly disliked the Queen Mother, fed up with Princess Margaret, even Princess Anne, who was rather well played in series three, just comes out with a lot of, sort of semi-spiky remarks. And as for Prince Charles, he's played as, as not only as a sort of wimp, but also as a sort of murderous person yelling at his wife. No, thanks to you, people are laughing in my face! Booing the heir to the throne, booing the crown. Taking into no account whatsoever either what he had to put up with in that marriage or indeed the constructive work that he was doing, which I guess would make boring television, but come on, at the end of that series, all you'd think he was doing was whinging about Camilla. I think the worst episode is the one in which involves the press secretary, Michael Shea, because um, in 1986, the Sunday Times uh, ran some pieces which implied that the Queen and Mrs. Thatcher were not getting on well together. Princess Margaret said it was the only time she ever saw the Queen cry was to think that in some way, you know, her relations with the Prime Minister were bad. Now, what actually happened is that Michael Shea, he um, had his own political views and he used his position as the Queen's press secretary to brief the Sunday Times. He then... Um, claimed that he had done no such thing until finally he was cornered. And even then, when he had to admit it, he um, said he'd been misrepresented. In 1987, it was revealed that two of the Queen Mother's nieces were in a, in, had been in a mental hospital. One of them had just died, and that's when the press got to hear about it. There were indeed two nieces of the Queen Mother's and three of their cousins. So five girls had been put into Earlswood, um, mental hospital um, in 1941. And they have the Queen Mother saying um, that at the time of the abdication, it was very important that there should be no hint of insanity in the royal family. And therefore, these girls were locked up in a mental hospital. Darwin had nothing on you lot. Shame on all of you. Margaret, no. Well, first of all, that's not how it happened. Secondly, there was no blood relationship, um, you know, at all with the person with the defective gene. And, I mean, to make her do that, I mean, I don't know what on earth they're trying to do. I mean, it's absolutely so far from the truth that it's almost unbearable. And if you want to hear more from Hugo Vickers about separating life and art, you can check out his book, The Crown Dissected, which covers the first three series. Before we go back to our panel, I want to get Rebecca back quickly because there were some conflicting reports earlier this week. Some saying that Charles was unhappy with his portrayal in The Crown and others saying that Camilla will watch the show and have a good laugh at it. So where is the truth, Miss Rebecca? <laughs> Yeah, well, I know for a fact Charles has never watched The Crown, got no intention of watching The Crown and, and probably doesn't even have a view on it. I mean, his, his attitude so much has been written about him over the years. It's kind of like water off a duck's back. But some of the people around him are very unhappy about it because they feel that The Crown has portrayed him as really as a one-dimensional character with a lot of inaccuracies in it, in, about him in it. And unfortunately for the makers of The Crown, while the other series are quite historic, 
there's a lot of people around now who either remember or actually experienced what we're seeing on screen at the moment. And I think that's why there are so many, you know, irritable voices about this. What do you think it does to the public's perception of the family? Does it alter it one way or another? Actually, I think it does, particularly the younger generation. I think this is why people around the royal family, uh, you know, are, are quite prickly about it because, um, you know, for, for a younger generation, this is history. And I think where the crown's been so clever because their sets are so sumptuous, the clothes are beautiful, you know, they, they kind of crow about this attention to detail. For those who don't know the truth of it, they will take it as gospel. Um, and that's it, particularly now, the period we're seeing in, season four it's just not a, a period that's very comfortable for the royal family at the moment i want to bring our in-studio guests into this now richard I, I mean how could they not let curiosity get the better on some of them must be watching didn't princess anne let slip that she'd seen the first series yeah. or something oh, like really? that <laughs> yeah. and, and i think zara and um mike tyndall have also watched it oh you'd have to watch it it's like you. a home movie but with better dialogue <laughs> you know and it's such a great story i mean th this is a family you put the, the fun into dysfunctional yeah. you know with the affairs well, and divorces and, yeah. and lemia and toe sucking and all that kind but of stuff that's the thing well it's got to be a tough season to watch yeah. for a lot of them right well the the thing that's not coming they're not reflecting in the crown is the sense of humor i mean i i do know i'm lucky enough to know camilla and and i do know prince charles a little bit and they are both really funny neither of them suffer from an irony deficiency i mean camilla's sense of humor is drier than an aa clinic mm. you know and they 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 love mischief and and wordplay and irreverence, and none of that's really coming across. And I'm across. not sure that the portrayal of Prince Philip's really um, working either, is it? He sort of comes across as a sort of cuddly uncle in the programme, but um, I think in reality he's maybe a bit more, a bit more spiky. Well, you know, we've seen, they've made a few historical howlers. Does it, do you think it matters to people, though? It's not a documentary. You know, it's a drama. But I think in some ways it... it presents as a documentary when they go to such trouble over the details of what people wore yeah. and the you know the the music and the period of the time i think it's there is a danger of us taking it too seriously i mean yeah. come on it's it's a fictional drama i think the audience are intelligent enough to know that they're imagining what what happened and um you know i don't particularly like it on sort of taste grounds it does seem a bit tasteless to be speculating about what people who are alive say and as rebecca says it's very different when you're reporting something in the 1950s than when it's much more recent i, I tell you what is taking a hit the class system I mean, you know, when they do mm. those contrapuntal storylines where they cut from the royal families talking about, you know, we're normal, we're lust like everybody else, and they cut to the doll cues and that kind of thing. Mm. And as Australians, when we first moved to Britain, I mean, the class system is a shock. Yeah. I mean, even the letters travel first and second class. You know, <laughs> do the first class letters get a little yeah. in-flight movie and a paper parasol cocktail on the way? You know, in the upper class, they're, they're weird people. They keep their dogs at home and send their kids off to high-class kennels called Eaton and Harrow. <laughs> And this is considered normal. This is very weird behaviour. <laughs> so I think the class system is taking a hit. And also, Britain has um, the, the lowest social mobility in the whole of Europe. So this is still mm. a big problem here. So maybe this will help, you know, take that apart. What about the actual storylines? Has any of it changed your perception of any of the big hitters in the royal family? Um, no, it, it's it's... It's made me love Camilla even more because even my friend Emerald Fennell is playing her and, mm. and she's, she's capturing Camilla's warmth and wit and, and uh, 
you know, she told me that when she was first engaged to Prince Charles, that American women kept sending her very quietly their cosmetic surgeon's cards. Oh my God! I know. Yeah. And of course, because they couldn't believe she she didn't she wanted to show her wrinkles, and that just made her laugh more and give her more laughter lines. <laughs> and what you see between those lines is wit and wisdom and warmth. Well, the She's one really loved. You, you know, there's so much argument about this portrayal of Diana and and Charles and Camilla, but what it does show categorically is that Charles and Camilla is like an enduring love story. Yeah. It's like maybe maybe yeah. they should have just got married in the first place. I that is a love story yeah. that's lasted the test. One thing I think the makers really did miss a trick is um, not covering the kidnap attempt on Princess Anne. Mm. They yes. haven't done that at all. It would have made the most dramatic episode. Oh. Do you remember on this program we had the policeman involved giving a first-hand account, and so it would have been fantastic. But maybe they're saving that for the film. The actress yeah. who plays <laughs> is very good, but they just missed a trick. She's a woman of substance. She has ovaries of steel. Yeah, yeah. we love her. But let, let's move on now. So as if the late Princess Diana wasn't in the news enough already. What with the BBC scandal about the Panorama interview, the Crown has brought her back into the public consciousness as a style icon. This week, eBay reported a 200% rise in searches for Diana-inspired fashion items. Here is You Magazine's Shelley Vella with a look back at some of the looks that have lasted to this day. Throughout her life, Diana's fashion choices always got people talking, from the bomber jackets to ball gowns, from flamboyant collars to off-the-shoulder frocks. But has Princess Diana's style really left a lasting legacy? And is it still influencing fashion today? The pie crust collar. It's enjoyed a lasting popularity from when the public first set eyes on her wearing it. Even Alexa Chung's first collection from M&S featured one, very reminiscent of Diana's, thus giving it a cool edge. We see it in the crown and trust me, there will be an abundance of choices on the high street too. Here's one from Serafina, a very classic pie crust collar with a little bit of detailing, one that Diana would have loved. And another version, which is from High Street Store Warehouse, which has a fancier collar which you can wear up or down. Again, this is something that Diana would have worn under a knit and with one of her tweedy skirts. Another one of Diana's looks that is enjoying a renaissance is an oversized knit paired with a slightly A-line midi skirt. Somewhat dowdy, it's not a look normally associated with a younger member of the royal family, but in the early days of her relationship with Prince Charles, she managed to carry the look off with a lot of class. Here's some great examples of a look that Diana would have worn, kind of a frumpy tank top knit with a little pie crust collar blouse and a tweed skirt. A knee-high boot would modernise this look. It would be the perfect addition in 2020. It's a look that many young women are wearing today. This skirt is from a brand called King & Tuckfield, which is an ethical label, which again is a very royal choice because they like to, their clothes to be sustainable and to last. Uh, the blouse is from Monsoon, and the little knit is from a new company called the London Cashmere Company. Again, just add boots. An example of how this look has permeated into high fashion. This is a look from Mulberry and again it's the perfect example of something Diana would have worn. A very classic plaid skirt and a big chunky oversized knit. Diana was famously uh, fond of a, a quirky knit or two and she loved a fair aisle with a bit of bright colour in it but she also wore a jumper that is now selling today with a little black sheep on it from a company called Rowing Blazers in the state and they are selling out you cannot get your hands on them. 
Puffed sleeves and polka dots, although possibly a heady combination for some, this became a firm favourite for Diana throughout her life and especially during her latter years with the royal family. These looks are still thriving today and you can easily put together a Diana-inspired outfit with pieces available on the high street at the moment. For example, this blouse here is from River Island. It has the slightly tweaked shoulders, a bigger sleeve, and of course, lots of polka dots. And it has that kind of fitted 80s shape too, which is perfect. Alternatively, you can go for a floor sweeping dress. This one's from Next, so very affordable, but it has the larger polka dot. And she did play with her polka dots using big and smaller styles. And if you really want to play and wear something a bit more statementy, this dress from Coast has the puffed blue sonny, chiffon sleeves, the fitted waist, and this feels like something that she would have had fun with. Some say Princess Diana's style was simply a reflection of the times she was living through. But this is precisely what makes her such an influential figure in the fashion world. She took those outfits from the 70s, 80s and 90s and gave them timeless appeal. She gave them the sort of immortality that continues to influence and permeate high fashion and high street brands today. Do you think she was an icon, a style icon? Oh, but she could wear anything. How stunningly beautiful. And yeah. that figure. I mean, I, we, I was wearing those clothes in that decade and it was hideous. But I'm we, talking about fashion faux pas. I mean, you'd seen better dressed salads. <laughs> but, you know, we thought we looked good, but it's pretty hideous. It just looks good on her, don't you think, Joe? I, mm. I don't know. I like a lot of it, actually. The, what about the, you, Richard? Well, they've come back, haven't they, big time. You know, my daughter's 14, and every time she, you know, comes out of her bedroom, she seems to be wearing something that was fashionable in the 80s that or just the 90s. Means you're old. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it really does make me feel old. But, yeah, she's, um, you know, everything from the 80s is back in fashion. And I think the crown and um, they're very much cashing in on that trend, really. I'm, I'm loving the nostalgia of it. But what, what do you think the show will do for her reputation, Diana's? I think it will introduce her to a new generation. Um, it sounds like, you know, Emma Corrin's done a fantastic job of portraying her. And she's really been turned into a star by this show. Mm. And, and yeah, and it's re remember that people like my daughter, you know, n never been alive while Diana was here and they're learning a bit about her. So I think she, that there is a good purpose to the crown yeah. as well as she negative was, one. She was irresistibly charming. I actually met her on that Australian tour in 1984, was a it? 83. 83. I mean, I remember it like it was mm. yesterday yeah. and I was young, you know. Yeah. I met her, I had to escort her at some function around to, my, my husband at the time took Prince Charles around to meet people and I took her around to meet people. And, I mean, I'm a Republican, so I just treated her normally. Yeah. And I remember saying to someone asked her what her t favourite TV show was, and she said, Dynasty, and I burst out laughing and said, Dynasty's not a drama for you, that's a documentary, isn't it? <laughs> you know, and she, she laughed, she was very, she was very warm. What she people don't talk about with her style is her hair. I feel like her hair was much more iconic than her wardrobe back yeah. in the day. I remember everybody wanted the hair. We can do that next week, Joe, yeah. surely. Yeah. yeah, you could do it. You've got, could, the, you've got the little bowl. You just need to tong the bang a bit. tonging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all we have time for. Thank you so much to my guests today, Kathy Lett, Richard Eden, and of course the males at Royal Editor, Rebecca English, all of our contributors, and to you for watching. We'll be back next week and every week via Spotify, Apple, and Google. Don't forget to sign up to your daily briefing from mailplus.co.uk. And of course, you can come back next week and join me, Joe Elvin, for more Palace Confidential. Mm -hmm.